Well, morning, everyone. Nice to, uh, nice to see so many happy people today. So uh, on the screen next to me, you'll see uh, a US Navy SEAL on the left. Um, this guy is called uh, Michael Monsoor. I'm going to call him Michael for short as I tell this story. Um, but Michael was sadly killed during the, the war in Iraq. And on the 29th of September 2006, Michael's platoon was based in El Ramadi. Uh, and whilst they were on patrol, they were engaged with four terrorist fighters. They were engaged in a firefight. And during this firefight, Michael managed to kill one of the terrorists, uh, and he also managed to injure another. But after this incident had taken place, uh, they were all anticipating another attack. So they looked for a, uh, a rooftop position for safety at this point. But as they were looking for this roof, uh, rooftop position, they could see that civilians were actually aiding the terrorists. They were blocking off the roads, blocking off streets. And the three Navy SEALs could hear sound from a, a nearby mosque, which was actually broadcasting the message, kill the Americans. So finally, they managed to find a rooftop position, um, and Michael was actually in a position where he was protecting the other two Navy SEALs. And these guys were sort of circa 15 feet away from him at this point. But his position on that rooftop actually made him the only Navy SEAL who actually had a quick access to an escape route, which was just behind him. The next thing they know, a grenade is thrown up from the street below and it's thrown up by one of the terrorists. This grenade comes up, it hits Michael on the chest, and it falls right next to him. So at this point, Michael has two choices in which he's got a split-second decision to make. Firstly, he could save his own life, and he could jump back in the escape route. However, this would expose the other two Navy SEALs. Secondly, he could attempt to save their lives. Well, Michael yells, Grenade! And instead of leaping backwards to save himself, he actually jumps onto that grenade and he covers it with his body. Seconds later, that grenade explodes and his body absorbs the full force of that blast. And sadly, he, he dies as a result of that. The other two Navy SEALs, they sustained minor injuries, but both survived. One of the survivors said at Michael's funeral, Mickey faced death in the face that day, and he said, you will not take my friends, I will go in their stead. He was 25 when he died, but as a result of his heroic actions, he was awarded the highest military award, which was the, the Medal of Honor. In his hometown in, uh, near California, um, he has a college football stadium that's named after him, and one of the new guided missile destroyers in the US Navy fleet has now been named the USS Michael Monsoor. You may be asking, well, why did they do this? Well, the reason simply is because Michael Monsoor literally sacrificed himself in order to save his friends. And there is no greater love, said Jesus of Nazareth, than to give your life for your friends. And here we see a clear example of that. And as I was reading through this story and, and watching it, the question actually came up and it said, well, would anyone give up their life for you? And the answer automatically comes to us. It says, well, somebody already has, and his name is Jesus of Nazareth. So today, 
we're going to look at the first part of Luke's gospel and Luke's version of the passion narrative. And as we read through these passages, we're going to be moving from the supper table to the place on the hillside where Judas knows where Jesus is going to be, and that's going to subsequently lead to to Jesus' arrest. But interestingly, Jesus refuses to hide. He could easily run off elsewhere at this point, but instead he shows his full acceptance of the fate of what's to come. And he's repeatedly discussed this with his disciples on the way to Jerusalem. So what we're seeing is that everything is starting to plan out as uh, scriptures indicated. Jesus knew not only would he be arrested, he's going to be tried, he's going to be killed, but he knew that this was God's given decision. He knows that this has to happen, but he also knows that he has to do this alone. Now, we all know from history that when rebel uh, leaders were found, it was typical for their associates to be captured, tortured, and killed with them. But Jesus knew that it was vital this didn't happen to, to Peter and to the other disciples. Jesus would fall. He's going to give his life to the many, but he mustn't drag the disciples down with him. And we see this. We see this in Luke's uh, sequel, the book of Acts. We see that each one of the disciples still has a vital role to play in carrying Jesus' mission forward. So Jesus, he prayed for Peter, and it was imperative that the disciples stayed out of this. In the last few weeks, we've been reviewing uh, Luke's gospel account, um, and this account speaks of the most important man in history, and it also reports the claims that this, mate, uh, this man makes, and these claims are the foundations of our Christian faith. But each time that I read Luke's gospel, I actually like to remind myself of the very beginning account of his gospel message, so I would typically read Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. And I'll read it here. It says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that have been taught. And this beginning passage of Luke is so often easily overlooked. But when we're trying to understand Luke's purpose, these four verses just give us such a wealth of information. Whether you're here today as a believer, non-believer, you may be something that's in between. But what's undeniable is that Luke's purpose here is to convince Theophilus, to convince the churches, and also the people that are reading uh, the account of the certainty of the things that are being taught about Jesus. And interestingly, every gospel, if we look at Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, they talk about Jesus and the 11 disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. Yet each gospel writer, um, each gospel writer has a specific audience, but they also have a specific purpose in mind. We know that Luke is writing to a non-Jewish official named Theophilus. And just, as I just mentioned there, he, uh, he declares that his purpose is to strengthen the faith of Theophilus and to anyone else that's reading his gospel account. But it's interesting to note that, that Luke actually doesn't call the place the Garden of Gethsemane like the other gospels. And that's likely because Theophilus has a limited knowledge of Jerusalem. 
Matthew and Mark, however, they reveal that Jesus went with the 11 disciples into the garden, and then Jesus tells them of his, uh, his deeply troubled soul. And if we go to verse 40, it says, pray that you will not fall into temptation. Well, unlike the other Gospels, Luke doesn't tell us that this was likely said to Peter, James, and John. What Luke is doing is he's focusing on that importance of the saying rather than actually who it was said to. And that makes perfect sense if you read Luke's Gospel. Since when we uh, look and read throughout this Gospel, there's great emphasis that's placed on prayer. And Jesus actually says the same thing again in verse 46. He says, rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And praying that one doesn't give into temptation is critical for Luke's purpose. And I actually find that it strongly resembles the Lord's Prayer, which is mentioned in uh, chapter 11, verse 4. It says, forgive us our sins, but we also forgive everyone who sins against us and lead us not into temptation. So as we read these verses, we may actually sit here and ask, well, what temptation is Jesus talking about here? I don't think we know for sure, but what we do know is that temptation is an invitation to go against God's will and also God's purpose. And that is why Jesus is instructing his disciples to pray not to go into temptation. And it's interesting because when I read the Lord's Prayer, I thought, when was the last time that I ever prayed or, or read the Lord's Prayer? not something we do very often. And I wonder, do any of us here actually pray the Lord's Prayer? Do we ever ask God to lead, uh, you know, lead me not into temptation? Do we find sometimes we're more focused on getting our own way and doing what we want rather than avoiding temptation? But let's not worry. I think that's only natural for us to do this. We're only human. Um, and we all have a sinful nature, but there is a way that we can combat this. We can pray to God. We can pray for strength, pray not to, not to give in to temptation. And what we see here is that's exactly what Jesus is instructing his disciples to do. Next thing we know is uh, Jesus goes a stone's throw away from the disciples and he goes down to kneel and pray. There's big emphasis here on the fact that Jesus kneels down to pray because the common posture for prayer at that time was to stand and to raise your hands to heaven. If someone was to kneel down and pray, that was just a sheer sign of desperation. But as we read this prayer, actually, Jesus shares one of the most profound and heartfelt prayers that I think we're ever here. He says, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. Do we realise what Jesus is asking here? Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. What Jesus is asking here is not to go to the cross. He's asking for another way. And the cup that Jesus is talking about here, it stands for God's judgment. And that's judgment that we've ultimately placed on him. Jesus never sinned. He certainly never sinned against his father. And he didn't deserve judgment. And this wasn't judgment that was just going to be like a mere slap on the wrist is going to be faced with excruciating agony of crucifixion. So we should all remember, not only did Jesus not deserve it, but actually, he didn't have to go through with it. And Luke is highlighting here 
also that the disciples were not the only ones that needed to pray not to enter into temptation. We see Jesus is doing that as well. He's aware of the sufferings that are going to come. And in his full humanity, he's faced with that temptation to walk away. But we have reassurance, because straight after these words, he immediately says, yet not my will, but yours be done. So he knew and expressed his resolve to follow the Father, no matter what the cost, he knew what was needed, what was needed and he knew that he needed to fulfill the Father's will. And if we go back to verse 37, uh, we touched on that slightly last week, he, he mentions his fate and he explains to the disciples, he says, it is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. He confirms to the disciples what is written in scripture about him must be fulfilled. For some time, I've um, been reviewing and focusing a lot on uh, New Testament reliability and biblical inerrancy. It's something I do as a hobby. Um, <laughs> but if I'm being honest, it's, um, it's been a real challenge. It's been something I've really grappled with, and there has been a lot of, uh, a lot of struggles with this. Um, so it's very kind that Oz has given me this passage today, um, because we're going to look into the next two verses, 43 and 44, and it'd be easy for me to skim over these, uh, these verses, because they are controversial. Anyone that's got their Bibles open will see that in your notes that these uh, verses are actually not included in the earliest manuscripts that we have today. So I'm not going to avoid talking about it. I'm going to go into it, because that's me. Um, and whilst they're, they're, you know, there's lots of opinions on this from, from scholars uh, on why they're not included, uh, most agree that these verses will show the, uh, the depth of Jesus' struggle. Uh, and that's led for, uh, for many reasons as to why the early scribes actually don't include them. And then we've got critical scholar Bart Ehrman. Anyone who knows Bart Ehrman will know straight away that he will always be quick to point out these inconsistencies. Um, and he actually writes a paper on it. It's called The Angel and the Agony. Um, but I'm actually going to look at someone more than a century earlier than, than Bart Ehrman. I'm going to look at um, a famous preacher called Charles Spurgeon. I'm sure you've all probably heard of. And actually, he raised this objection, and he preached it to his congregation. And Spurgeon said that the verses gave such a picture of Christ's humanity that many couldn't actually believe them to be true. He said to his congregation, he said, this 43rd verse is omitted in some versions of the Scriptures, and there have been several learned men who, while they could not disprove the existence of this verse in the most ancient manuscripts, have yet laboured hard to cut it out, since they brought it too great a stoop for Christ to take. And as we can see here, one of the great controversies of the early church was the divinity of Jesus, and there was significant debate about whether Jesus was fully God and actually equal to God. And when we look at these verses, they certainly don't strengthen his claim to divinity in any way. If anything, they actually expose the frailty of his humanity. And I would agree, it's really hard to determine if they were originally left out because they appeared... Uh, incompatible with the divinity of Jesus, or if they were added at a later date to simply further st uh, stress uh, Jesus' agony. But either way, I don't think these uh, textual criticisms, uh, they simply don't invalidate the, the core claims of Christianity. And I actually found it's actually quite to the contrary. What I um, actually concluded is uh, the style of literature that we're reading in the Gospels is, uh, if anything, very comparable and consistent 
with, uh, with what we read in, uh, in other books of antiquity. So I really don't see a problem with this. Um, and even when people point out these, these inconsistencies, I really don't see it as an issue. Anyway, just taking my apologetic hat off, I'm going to go back to theology. Um, as I pondered on these, uh, these verses, and I read through them, there's actually nothing really unusual about an angel appearance in, uh, in Luke. Um, the gospel starts with an angelic appearance to, to Zechariah and to Mary about the conceptions of, uh, of John the Baptist and Jesus. And they actually appear throughout all the gospels. Uh, and here what we see is that the angel comes and comes to strengthen Jesus. And I found Psalm 91 verse 11 quite fitting here. It says, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. And look what happens in verse 44. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. So at this stage, the struggle of what he's about to face, it hasn't gone. Jesus hasn't quite accepted his fate just yet. He's still coming to the, uh, the, the terms and the reality of the cross and also the, uh, the separation that he's going to have from his father. And that is what's causing him extreme agony. But if we go back to verse 42, he says, Yet not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus here is surrendering to his father's will. He accepts his fate. And I think here he's ready to face the challenge of the cross and the events that also lead up to it. So Jesus has passed that test of praying. He's passed that test of not praying, not to give in to temptation and not walk away from the trials he's about to face. But then what we see is that the disciples, they've not prayed. They're asleep. And Jesus says, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And whilst this dispute's going on, we've got a crowd that's being led up by Judas. And it soon becomes quite clear that this is no ordinary crowd. We see in, in verse 52, uh, there's mention of high priests and elders with their officers who are carrying swords and clubs. That indicates it's no unorganized crowd. This is an armed group that are specifically sent to arrest Jesus as was planned in verse 4 of this chapter. And then ironically, Judas goes to kiss Jesus. And Jesus says, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Well, this is Judas' signal to identify Jesus. And the kiss would normally be a mark of respect, loyalty, and affection. However, what we see in this instance, it just underlines that sheer treachery of Judas Iscariot. But then the disciples step in. They start swinging their swords. One cuts off the ear of a high priest. This wasn't supposed to happen. They were supposed to pray. Pray that they would submit to God's will. But instead, what did they do? They fell asleep. Jesus had just prayed. He just accepted that his will was to go to the cross. The disciples, however, they want things to go their own way. They're not aligned, actually, with what the Father's will is. They think they know best. So what does Jesus do? Well, he puts a stop to it. He heals the high priest's servant. He calms the situation down. He knows that darkness is going to have its short reign, but he still goes with them, and he goes with them without resistance. But to get to this point, Jesus faced temptation to walk away. He struggles through prayer to accept his fate, and accept the, uh, the will of his father. So prayer, 
eventually helped him overcome that temptation of walking away. I think there are lessons we can take away from this passage, and uh, we should learn to follow Jesus' example here. I think we can learn to give up our will and align it with God's will. Don't get me wrong, it's easy for me to stand up here and say that, it's not easy. Life isn't always easy. And we'll all go through situations where we don't necessarily get what we want. And not getting our way is frustrating, it's disappointing. It can lead to anger, it can lead to despair. But yet, it happens also often in life. But sometimes, we actually do witness the good that comes out of not getting our own way. And I think when we look at today's passage, that shows the greatest example of that. It's about someone who didn't get their own way, yet in the end, not getting their own way, brought so much good to the world and so much good to many of us who are here today. So moving forward, I want us to think about what we do when we don't get what we want. How do we respond to that? And when we're faced with this challenge, I just encourage you to pray. Pray to God. Pray and submit to his will, just as Jesus does here. Now I'd like to finish with a, actually a thought that I had as I was preparing this sermon. It's just something that I felt like I needed to share. And it may be something actually that some of you may have been asked before. It may be a, you know, something that a colleague or relatives come up with. Or it may be a question that you yourselves have got, actually, but never really got to the answer of it. And that's why did Jesus actually have to do this? Why was there actually not another way? This passage focuses, and the next two chapters even, focus a lot on the incredible sacrifice that Jesus makes for mankind and for us to reconcile our relationship with God. But I think sometimes it's easy to forget that God was in a similar situation. God has a dilemma. He's got a dilemma with his justice and his love. And I think since we've all sinned at one time in our lives, God's infinite justice demands that he punishes the sins committed. But then we have this infinite love. Because of his infinite love, God wants to find a way to avoid punishing us. So what is the only way that God can remain just but not punish us for our sins? He must punish a sinless person, a sinless substitute. And this sinless substitute is someone who voluntarily takes our punishment for us. And you may ask, well, why does it have to be sinless? Well, because the substitute or that person must pay for our sins, not his own. Okay, so why does it have to be voluntarily? Well, because it would be unjust to punish someone against their will. The question is, where can God find a sinless substitute? He's certainly not going to get it from sinful humanity, but only from himself. So God himself is that substitute, and he came down to save you and me from punishment. So you may say to yourselves, yeah, I'm a good person, I do good deeds, and I know there are many good people in here. But in order to be God, his standard is moral perfection. It's not the standard of most people. It's moral perfection because his unchanging nature is moral perfection. So here we understand that no good deed can override a bad one. So Jesus, what does Jesus do? He came to us 
to offer us a way out of punishment and to offer eternal life. And because of his willingness, we can today have that reconciled relationship with that father. So when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the father except through me, this is not an arrogant claim. This is not a random claim. Jesus is the only way because there is only one way that God can reconcile his infinite justice and his infinite love. And in Romans 3:26, Paul says, he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. God loves us so much that he respects all of our decisions to freely reject him. But whether we reject him or not, it doesn't change the fact that God satisfied his justice by punishing himself for our sins and holding out that payment for each one of us. All we have to do to be set free is simply accept that gift. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the infinite love that you share with us. We're all made in your image and we Thank you for the sacrifice that was made so that we can all be reconciled with you. I pray that as a church we lift our hands up to you and ask for strength in our need to overcome temptation. Temptation that goes against what may be your will. So remember we're finite beings whereas you are infinite and omniscient. We put our faith back and trust in you. When we face troubled times, we won't turn our backs on you instead. We accept our future, accept our hopes and dreams, all that rests with you and your will. In your name we pray. Amen.